Well, this morning we are going to pick up from where we left off in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we're going to finish the section that we had looked at last week, starting in verse 1. And, and it is helpful, as we said last week, it's helpful to see the first 12 verses as one section of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, rather than uh, different um, segments. It's one big section, there's one overarching theme that follows through the first 12 verses of this chapter. And then within those 12 verses, we see a number of concrete examples of what it means uh, to live out that theme. And the theme is found in verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 4, uh, we see Paul and his companions writing, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And so these verses unpack then, the verses that follow unpack that theme of what it means to live a life that pleases the Lord. What does it mean to live a life that pleases the Lord? And how can we do that more and more? And verses 3 then through to 8, which we saw last week, unpacks what that means in terms of the holiness that we are called to. As God's holy people, we must live holy lives. And one area, certainly where that works out, is how we avoid sexual immorality. And essentially then, how God's people understand and live out God's teaching on sex is one way in which they can please him. And so in a world that offers a multitude of different messages about sex, a multitude of temptations away from God's good path, then we know in verse 7, for God called us, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And then in verse 8, we're, we're granted and we're, we're reminded of that joy that we are given the Holy Spirit in order to live that life. And so that's one area of life in which we can live to please the Lord. And then as we work our way through verses 9 to 12, we see two more areas and two more things that are, that are linked with what it means to live a life that pleases the Lord. Last week I said, and, and I put it like this, that please, we can please the Lord through loving others and please the Lord through quiet living. Please the Lord through loving others in verses 9 and 10. And we can please the Lord through quiet living in verses 11 to 12. Uh, and actually, although I said that these are two more examples, they actually flow from one another. So it, again, there's another sub-theme underneath this theme. Um, in these verses, what we're going to see is how, how we can please the Lord by loving one another in the family of God. And we do that, one, one way in which we do that is by living a quiet life. And so although they may seem unconnected, even when we read through those verses, it seems like Goodness, the writers are jumping from loving one another to working hard. How does that actually play itself out? Well, hopefully the Lord will show us as we spend time in his work, in his word this morning. And that living a life that pleases the Lord means that we love others, particularly in the family of God, as, as this letter is directed to a gathered church. And part of the outworking of that love is then our attitude to work. And that then works itself out outwardly and inwardly. Inwardly within the church, that, that then protects unity because we love one another in the way we're living. Love helps to, that love to flourish and grow. And outwardly then, as we see from the very end of chapter uh, 4, verse 12, is that we actually then have an opportunity to win respect of outsiders by our love for one another and our attitude to work. And so I'd love us to pray together, and then I'm going to read those verses uh, once more with us. So let's pray and ask God for his help as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather so freely and have such 
easy access to your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to hear your voice as you speak to us through your word. May your spirit implant your word in our hearts in a way that bears fruit in our lives. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me read verses 9 to 12 again of 1 Thessalonians 4. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you may not be dependent on anybody. And so let's begin by considering, well, what do these verses have to show us about how we can live a life that pleases the Lord, pleases God by loving others in verses 9 and 10. We've seen throughout this letter that, 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 this, that love is a common theme that has cropped up throughout the letter. Paul and his companions who are writing this letter to the church have prayed, thanking God for the love of the church in chapter 1. They've recalled how much they loved the church while they were with them. They've also thought about how they have expressed their deep longing to be back with the church because of their affection for them. They pray at the end of chapter 3 that their love may grow. Love, love, love. It seems to be a common theme throughout this, uh, throughout this letter. And indeed, that, that prayer at the end of chapter 3 in verse 12 says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. Paul and his companions deeply love this church and the church deeply love each other and others outside the church. This is a real celebration of love. And so it's no surprise then that the writers do celebrate this love that the church has again here in chapter 4. And indeed how that love is expressed not just locally but within the churches in their wider geographical area. And so verse 9 says, About your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God how to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. So th this love that this church has is deep, and it is felt, it is visible, it is tangible. And that term love that's being used here is that familial love, it is that brotherly love. And the Greek term here is Philadelphia, that brotherly affection that is drawing them together. And the Thessalonian church, they know what it is. They know how to display it. They, they don't need any instruction on it. Paul says, we don't need to write to you about it. But it's interesting, isn't it, how Paul and his, writer and his companions explain how this Thessalonian church have come to know the love of God so deeply. The end of verse 9 says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Well, how did that happen? How does that happen? How can we encourage that to happen here? Well, as we think about it more fully, we can see the connection that's regularly made between following Jesus, loving Jesus, and loving others who also love Jesus. It's, it's a regular theme throughout the New Testament, certainly. Last week, we referenced John thirteen thirty-five that states, by this, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the way that the disciples of Jesus love one another is actually a display of their identity. As a disciple of Jesus, I will love other disciples of Jesus. To love Jesus is to love his people. 
And, and therefore, that's true of all Christians. The Thessalonian church here are exemplifying this in a wonderful way, but they shouldn't be a special case. This should be the normal practice of Christians. It's not some special ability that they have that we can't. No, to be loved, to love God means that we will love his people. 1 John 4 puts this brilliantly and points this out so clearly that to love God is to love his people. In 1 John 4 verse 7, we see this. Dear friends, let us love one another. Why? For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So God is the source of lasting, true, sacrificial, dependable love. Indeed, verse 8 goes on to say that God is love. And so to know him is to know love, to receive his love, then enables that love to pour out to other people. And then by the time we get to verse 11, John writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See the flow of that? At the top of this waterfall, this never-ending spring of love is God himself, who is love himself. And he demonstrates that love very visibly, very tangibly. We'll think about verses 9 and 10 as we gather around the communion table this morning. When we see that God so loved us that he sent Jesus to take the penalty of sin so that we could be forgiven and walk with him and be part of his family, know his love and know him. And therefore, as loved by him, we would then love others. In that Philadelphia brotherly family love within the family of God. Love is to be a key distinctive of a follower of Jesus. And so that's what the Thessalonians are exhibiting here. You have been taught by God to love each other because God is love. Knowing God's love means and flows out from us to other people. And so they're commended for their love, which is clearly on display. Their love for each other within the congregation, yes, but even their love then for all God's family throughout Macedonia. They're setting a wonderful example for us here, aren't they? The Thessalonian Christians. What it means to love God. They've understood God's love for them. Then that love overflows from them to one another. And from one another to their brothers and sisters beyond them. But it all begins with God's love for them. And therefore, for those of us who know the love of God, the same love that he has and has for us that he had for his Thessalonian children in the first century. Because we know God's love, we also ought to love one another. And that ought, it's not a, it's not a begrudging ought. We must love one another, like some legalistic rule that we must keep. No, it's the natural flow. God so loved us, therefore we ought to love one another. And so his love compels us to love each other. And that that links with what we saw last week. In terms of the compulsion in verse 1 of chapter 4 to follow and to live this life that pleases God more and more. In verse 10, they write again, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, to continue to love God's people more and more. There's always room to grow when it comes to our love. And that happens when we know and enjoy and abide in the love of God more and more. We will love others more and more. 
See, the, the, the call to the Thessalonians here, and I, I indeed believe for us too, the call is that they don't become either weary in showing love or even content that they have been loved so we can sit and wait for Christ to return. No, let's keep on loving. Keep on digging into the well of God's unending love and allow that to compel us to love others. Let's do so more and more. Indeed, that prayer at the end of chapter 3, may, uh, in verse 12 of chapter 3, may your, the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And so love, this, especially this Philadelphia-style love for one another love, can grow more and more and increase more and more the more we know God's love for us. And so there's room to grow, there's room to mature, there's room to move forward under God's guiding as we seek to love one another. But, but maybe that sounds a bit intangible. Surely love is just something you feel. How, how do you know that you're growing in love more and more? Well, it seems certainly that there's something that is happening, that the Thessalonians are doing something to demonstrate and show their love. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 10, when they urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, well, the doing there is to love the brothers and sisters in Macedonia. And so there's an action here to this love. Love isn't just something that can be felt. It's something that leads us to action. We were thinking about this even last night in our marriage session, that love isn't just something we feel. It's something that at times must be willed. We must choose decisively to love and act on that love that we know is there, not just rely on how we're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. See, clearly the way the Christians in Thessalonica had loved one another and loved their neighboring churches was tangible. Now, we're not told the specifics of how this was working out from Thessalonica to the Macedonian churches, how that love was shared, but we see loads of examples throughout the New Testament of how God's people love each other. It begins right in the start when the church is formed in Acts 2, when we see the, this wonderful gathering of Christians at the end of Acts chapter 2, and we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled at awe, with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the result of all of that was the Lord added daily to the number of those who were being saved. And so the early believers, a characteristic of what it was to be a follower of Jesus was to be devoted, to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, devote yourself to fellowship, devote yourself to worship, devote yourself to one another. It was a key marker of the Christian church as it spread from Jerusalem throughout the region. And so there's a sense of generosity as they sell possessions just so that they could give to someone in need. There's a sense of camaraderie as they have everything in common together. And so they loved each other. And that love was very tangible. That love meant that there was none among them who had need. We have other examples throughout the New Testament of one church financially and sacrificially giving to support another. Love is felt. Love is tangible. Love is, is active. But, but, but why is it important to know that? Well, it's important to know that because that's one way in which we can know that our love is growing. It's, it's not that we measure our love by our actions, but certainly a love that doesn't take action might fade. 
A love that is active continues to grow, continues to be nurtured. A love that, that takes on itself the needs of others, the burdens of others has the potential to grow. And so out of love, we long, we long to serve one another. We long to lift the need off one another. And so that, that evokes action from us. And therefore we can do so more and more and more and more and more and more. And I wonder how you think this might play out in our church family here. Do we need to grow in our love for one another? I'd say yes, because we always can, not as a critique of where we are, but the reality that there's a, there's a, <laughs> there is no boundary to that. We just need to keep on growing more and more in our love. And of course, we see the fruit of that love, the kind of action that we've been speaking of. We see that here. But I wonder too, as, as we find ourselves in, in 21st century Western world, where we're not under the, the same intensity of persecution that our first century brothers and sisters were, and equally many of us, not all, but many of us are blessed with financial provision. We are self-sufficient. And so there's not that same obvious need that some of us have. But that doesn't mean that there's not opportunity to love and to show love. See, as brothers and sisters united by our Savior, let's recognize the gift we've been given in one another and the command we've been given to love one another. He has loved us so we can love one another. And therefore, that might mean that at times we need to break down the facade that everything is okay when it's not. It's, it's okay to share that here with your brothers and sisters because the response you should get is love. And of course, that's risky. Of course, people will let us down as we do that. That's the unfortunate nature of people. But we are to love one another. And so I'm not going to listen in over coffee when the question is, how are you? Fine. <laughs> I'm not saying you're lying. <laughs> but but let, let's push beyond the facade of being fine. If we're not fine, then share your burdens with one another. It is a wonderful gift that God has given us and a way in which we can express our love for one another by genuinely wanting to know, how are you doing? And how can we help? And so, of course, there's love that we can share in, with and among one another here. But that love, of course, also spills out from here way beyond these walls to our brothers and sisters, not just in this city or in our nation, but across our world. And there, when we look beyond ourselves, of course, we see very real, genuine, tangible need. And we can meet that need if we have means. And so let's show and share that love with our brothers and sisters around the world. And so we've been thinking then what it means to please a life, or live a life, sorry, of pleasing God that means we love one another. That is a life of love. And then when we move through verse 11 and 12, it might seem that we shift gears a little as Paul and his companions then think about what it means to live in society and live particularly when we think about our work. But actually the two are linked, how we love one another as brothers and sisters and how we live our life and particularly how we financially sustain ourselves, those two things are linked. So it might sound, as we read through verse 11 and 12, it might sound like a contradiction of everything we've just been saying. That we've been celebrating and recognizing the need to love and care for and be vulnerable with one another and to, to share our burdens and to meet the needs of others. And then we read in verse 11 and 12, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, 
so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And so even though we've been thinking about loving one another, are we now to say, you know, well, the way that we love one another is to mind your own business and don't depend on anybody? That sounds contradictory. Well, let me explain how it's not. At first reading, we might think that this is contradictory, but in the context, particularly as we zoom out and see the whole of 1 Thessalonians, and particularly 1 and 2 Thessalonians together, 2 Thessalonians being the follow-up letter to this one, we see actually the fuller and more practical indication of what might be going on here within the Thessalonian church and how then this teaching is an an action of love. See, as we continue into chapter 5 and then into 2 Thessalonians 3, we see the church being told to watch out for those who are idle and to watch out for those who are disruptive and to watch out for busybodies. And essentially, therefore, it seems that there are some within the church in Thessalonica who, for one reason or another, are not involved in gainful employment. And in the absence of that, they're making a nuisance of themselves to others, essentially. It's my Northern Irish version. The letters don't tell us exactly what the issue are, but it is clear that there are some who could be spending their days working, providing for their families and the church family, but they are choosing not to. Now, now, please be clear, this is not about those who are unable to work. This is about those who could work, but are choosing not to. And because they choose not to work, they are then relying on the generosity of their brothers and sisters to support them. And that is causing strain on them and on the generosity. And therefore, being described as idle, as disruptive, as busybodies, it seems that this is causing harm within the fellowship in two ways. Firstly, in in modern day language, they're sticking their noses in other people's business. Second Thessalonians 3 says that they are not busy, they are busybodies. And secondly, then, the reason this is causing harm is that financial strain it is causing on those who are generously supporting them, seeking to see a need of, you need financial support. Well, I might be able to meet that need, but actually the person supposedly in need could be self-sufficient. And so this teaching might sound like this is very different than love, but hopefully you can see how actually to love one another means that we will be willing and generous to meet need when it's there, but also we will live in such a way that we try not to put burdens on others when we could be supporting ourselves. And so it's a loving thing to generously support those who are in genuine need, absolutely. But it is also a loving thing to not want to put strain on my brothers and sisters by causing a need that I could actually meet myself. And so hopefully that helps us to see verse 11 and 12 in light of the context that's going on here, but also then in terms of how that can mean for us all. And so what should we do and what, should, what is the church um, instructed to do in response to this? Well, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That, that seems to be a, a reference to not causing disruption, not causing aggravation in the life of others. It's not saying that Christians should, the volume should always be turned down. But it's just a sense that by our humble and quiet way, with gentleness, we can live a life, and that life actually speaks to others. This idea of living a quiet life is mentioned twice, um, or in two other occasions, sorry, within the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 2 and in 1 Peter 3. And both of those occasions are talking about Christians living a quiet life in order that those who don't know Jesus yet would be drawn to that, drawn to that quiet, humble life. 
And it's the same here, isn't it? Live in such a way so that, verse 12, you may win the respect of outsiders. And so this isn't talking about, the re- uh, it's not com- commanding that Christians never speak up in society for truth. It's not about that. It's about being disruptive. It's about being aggravating when there's not a gospel need to be. It's about being meddlesome. Making trouble where there doesn't need to be trouble. And so make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Verse 11 continues, you should mind your own business and work with your own hands. And the idea here does seem to be to keep the eyes on the work that's in front of you. Be active in it. Work well at it. Be diligent in it. Don't worry about what other people are doing for their employment. Do what's in front of you. Be busy with your work, which is yours to do because God has given it to you to do. And verse 12 then says, well, the outcome of this will be to win the respect of outsiders and you'll not be dependent on anybody. And I wonder, for those of us in employment, I wonder if you ever thought about your attitude to work and your diligence in it. And I wonder, have you considered how your attitude to work and how your behavior at work speaks to your faith in Christ? It seems here that there's a link, a direct link being made that the way that you go about your work may win the respect of outsiders. And so have we considered that the work that God has called us to on our Monday to Friday or whenever it happens to be could be one of the primary places where God has placed you to be his witness? Or I wonder, do some of us see a bit of a disconnect between our Monday to Friday work and our weekend life, our faith life and our work life? When we read through the New Testament, there doesn't seem to be that distinction. We follow Jesus everywhere we are. And so the attitude that we have to our work and about our work and during our work actually helps to show the the wonder of the gospel that we believe. Now, I get it. We all have good days and bad days at work. We always have exciting days and not so exciting days at work, fulfilling days and not so fulfilling days at work. I get it. But in general, I I wonder what our attitude and our behavior at work says to others who watch us about King Jesus. It seems here that we can live a quiet life, mind our own business, work at it with our hands, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. And so I think it's one of the ways in which we've seen throughout this letter that the Thessalonians are living a visible faith, that their faith is impacting all of their life, and people are seeing it, seeing the impact of it. And so through their, through their productive work, through the lack of meddling, that they are actually winning the respect of outsiders, it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to many of us. And so we can win the respect of outsiders. The second impact of all of this then, as we read in the last few words of verse 12, is not to be dependent on anybody. And this is what I was mentioning earlier on. This humble, quiet, diligent life Sounds counterintuitive. It doesn't mean that we never ask for need or never express our need, but it's about a dependence that we may foster on others that might be unhealthy. It's about, the point is that those who are not working are in need, but they're in need when they could be working, they could be making a living for themselves, and so they're actually adding stress to their brothers and sisters. It links back even to what Paul and his companions had said about their time in Thessalonica back in chapter 2, verse 9, when they had said, 
Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. So Paul and his companions worked hard so that they wouldn't be a burden on the church. So their desire not to be a burden was actually a demonstration of their love for the church. And so love can be expressed, of course it can be expressed, by generously giving to brothers and sisters who are in need. Of course it can. This is not, this is not a, a blanket condemnation of ever showing or expressing need, of course not. But it is, it is a challenge to say, don't become dependent on, on others financially when you can meet that need yourself. And this is challenging. I don't know how this is going to work out for, for you or for us. Please talk to me afterwards. If you think, hang on, I, I don't get what this means. Does this mean that we should all just keep on working and never retire? Does it mean, how do we, how do we view our, our giving to global mission? All of that, that all comes under this kind, of, this kind of thinking. The point is that under the banner of how we love one another, we strive to maintain unity by not becoming a burden, an unnecessary burden on our brothers and sisters. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, let, let, let's recognize what God has been, has been trying to say to us through his word. As God's children saved by him, we have the immense privilege of living a life that pleases him, that incorporates our whole life. And in these verses, we have had just three examples where we have a life of holiness regarding our, our sexual attitudes and behavior. We have a life of love, a love for all of God's people here locally and beyond. And of course, that spills out to a love for those who don't know Jesus yet. And a life of quietness, a life of humility, being busy when we're able, not busy bodies who meddle in the affairs of others, but rather we work diligently at the tasks that God has given us and he has provided us with. And all of that is so that we may win the respect of outsiders, provide opportunity to share the gospel with them, and therefore helping to preserve unity among God's people here as we celebrate the generosity that God has shown us together. So what a privilege it is that we have the, the joy of, of living a life to please God, the, the ultimate almighty God who has rescued us and saved us from sin. We can live in a way that pleases him. And may he help us as we seek to do that individually and together here as his church family in this place. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. And Lord, we thank you for the great love that you have shown us. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed love. We thank you that therefore you have shown that love to us. And that many of us have responded to that love, that love that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. On the cross, taking the penalty of our sin rising victoriously from the grave, securing an eternal future for all who bow the knee before him. We thank you, Father, for your great love. And therefore we pray that you would help us as those who have been loved and know your love, that we would love one another, that this church family would be a place of love, that we would joyfully and quickly meet the tangible needs of others, 
Beyond that, Father, that we would pray regularly for one another. We would seek to support one another as we follow you. We would seek to love and care in all the ways that we can. And Lord, I pray for those of us who who are still at that stage in life where we can work and where you have called us to our places of work. Lord, would you help us to see our, th- those places of work as a place to serve you, as a place to make you known, as a, as a, th- that our attitude to work would be one driven by you, that in all things we would seek to glorify you. And Lord, by the way we work, by the way we live our quiet lives, would you indeed Help us to win the respect of outsiders, not for our own reputations, but Father, so that they may see you at work in our lives and that we would have opportunities and boldly take the opportunities that you give us to speak of you to those that we rub shoulders with week by week. Father, for those of us who aren't in current employment, Lord, I I thank you for the opportunities that you have given to us with family, with friends, with neighbors, with those around us uh, to show this wonderful, joyful, full life of faith that you have given the forgiveness that you have bestowed upon us in the life that you've called us into so help us father wherever we are in our walk with you or in our life situation help us father to live a life that pleases you a life of holiness a life of love for your people and for the world that you've placed us in a life of diligent work when you've called us to that and lord in all things we do pray that you would be glorified and you would be exalted it's in your name we pray amen